Last March, when COVID-19 really hit and we were kind of realizing how serious it was and the lockdowns were about to begin and the schools were closing, I was taking out the trash, marveling how quiet the neighborhood was that night. But not in a peaceful way, though. It, it felt kind of ominous, like the city was holding its breath. And as I was thinking about this and everything else that was happening, I looked up into the sky at the stars. As I looked to the west... I saw a light moving across the sky. It was too high and too small to be an airplane and too fast to be a star. It was a satellite. Now, I've seen satellites before, of course, but it always felt kind of rare and cool to see one. So I watched it. But five seconds later, another one appeared. And another. And another. And they just kept coming maybe 40 or 50 or so, all in a perfectly straight line, moving southwest and northeast. And that feeling of seeing something kind of cool, it dried up. Maybe it was just the general feeling of unease in the air, you know, that weird sense of time being suspended that we felt at the beginning of all of this. But there was a feeling of eeriness that replaced my initial sense of wonderment. And, of course, as soon as I went inside, I had to find out what these things were, and after some Googling, what I found out was... Those are Elon Musk's Starlink satellites. Yep, those mysterious lights silently moving across the night sky are indeed satellites. Lots and lots and lots of satellites. That's almost certainly what you were seeing. Oh, this is... My name is Ethan Siegel. I'm a PhD astrophysicist, a former professor, and now a full-time science communicator. I reached out to talk to Ethan about this because, naturally, I was curious about what I was seeing. I wanted to talk to someone who could tell me the what and why of these things up there. And the answer, as it turns out, is, well, disappointingly mundane. What all of these are, I've called them mega constellations of satellites. And basically, these are plans to launch a large global network of satellites that will effectively cover the surface of the Earth, which is to say when you are on the surface of the Earth, uh, you will have a large number of satellites from the same company that you can connect to, that you will have access to, that these satellites, they can send and receive signals just like your Wi-Fi network can send and receive signals, except they'll be in space and they don't require very much ground-based infrastructure. So if you have a 5G compatible phone, you can get 5G internet service from these satellites. So really, we're talking about more accessible cell service. Right now, the majority of us here in the States get our coverage from those cell towers you see around town. Sometimes they're dressed up like trees, but mostly they're just these ungainly one or two story high structures that pop up here and there like some kind of giant metal weed. What's the need then for thousands of satellites? The ground-based infrastructure that you're talking about is second to none. It is better than anything that will go up in space. If we could do that globally um, to everybody, uh, that would be preferred. However, the farther away you are from that, the more remote you are, the harder it is to build that infrastructure for everyone. And when you start talking about internationally and you start talking about countries that 
don't have that kind of infrastructure or um, or regions of the world where not everyone has access to these towers or if you build these towers people are going to rob them and strip them for their raw materials um, you know now you start seeing well maybe it's advantageous to have a system that isn't reliant on earth-based infrastructure so there there is a motivation when you're talking about um, underserved areas in terms of internet access I, I if you have Google Fiber installed, you're not going to switch over to 5G. But if you leave your house and you go camping, wouldn't it be great to still get 5G on your phone when you're out in the middle of nowhere? On the surface, that doesn't sound too bad. And certainly there's a need for fast internet service for underserved communities. However, Ethan doesn't think that's what this is. People will cite these altruistic aspirations of like, oh, well, we want to provide internet to places and people that wouldn't have it otherwise. No, they're, they're charging for this and they're charging a premium for it and they're designing it to do high speed, large data streaming. They're not designing it to, you know, to give poor third world children, um, you know, free internet access so they can get schooling. If they made this a public utility, it could be interesting, but I have not heard any plans uh, for that to be the case. If you're beginning to sniff out a skeptical tone here, you're not wrong. And it's not just Ethan who's approaching this endeavor with a jaundiced eye. The astronomer community as a whole is wary of what Elon Musk and others are sending out into space. Because, somewhat surprisingly, there are not really any regulations on who can send what into the atmosphere. There's just no real answer to the question of who owns the sky. We have very few international laws and treaties that govern the use of outer space. Basically, the only laws we have that are international regulations are uh, you can't use them uh, for like military or warlike purposes. And if you damage another piece of property with your satellites in space, you're responsible for it. There are some regulations about radio satellites because we have rules about, you know, radio frequencies and who can broadcast in which bands, etc. Um, but as far as what we do optically, uh, there are really no rules. It really is like the Wild West up there. And the FCC, the governing body in the United States, has decided that that is so, has decided that it is that this is not something that they should regulate or feel the need to regulate. So until we have some sort of national and or international regulations that govern the use of the night sky, all of this is legal. So what does it mean to have tens of thousands of objects in orbit around the Earth? Perhaps more specifically, what does it mean for people in Ethan's profession? If your goal is to say, well, you know, who needs astronomy anyway? And I want to, you know, I want to play Call of Duty 5 on my smartphone as fast as I can, um, no matter where I am, then, you know, then you're not really going to care about the impact it has on astronomy and whether this hinders our ability to monitor the sky for potentially Earth impacting satellites. 
It's not really going to hit your radar whether um, these fantastic next generation telescopes we're building to try and find potentially habitable Earth-like planets around stars other than our own are going to be able to use their adaptive optics and their laser guide stars because, you know, if the military says, hey, you can't use this, like they often say, uh, while our satellites are overhead, and by the way, we have tens of thousands of them and they're always overhead, um, that's science we're not going to be able to do. If we say, you know, um, boy, what if there's a disaster like a solar flare and solar flares go and knock out the electronics on satellites, which which happen. Solar events do that. They knock out electronics on satellites. It's a way they're incredibly disruptive. These satellites because there are so many of them in such a crowded space in this low Earth orbit, uh, the risk of satellite collisions is very high. In fact, Elon Musk's original Starlink satellites, the very first batch, almost collided with the European Space Agency satellite, which had to move itself, even though it had the right of way. So, um, you know, I think that this risk of what we call Kessler syndrome is an enormous challenge where if you have a satellite collision because the AI guidance system got knocked offline, what happens? Well, you're going to get satellite debris filling low Earth orbit. And if you have enough of these satellites and enough of these debris chunks, you can get a cascading chain reaction where basically low Earth orbit is now just filled with junk and debris. Ultimately, we're just going to have to wait and see what kind of impact this has on the night sky, on science, and on the planet. But there are reasons to be skeptical and hesitant. Ethan sums it up this way. I have to say, like, just from a personal level, right, if I want to say, you know, like, put all the science education and all the scientific talk about it, um, for me, looking up at the night sky is it's a way to gain that feeling of peace, to sort of perceive in some way, in some small way that we can from here on Earth, the vastness of the universe and our feelings of being humble and small and our place in it. And when I see something similar to what you described, when I see that trail of satellites going by where there's a bright satellite and then behind it is another and another and and that goes on um, for some time, um, it just sort of takes that enjoyment away from me. It sort of fills me with this anxiety instead knowing that all this wonder and all this majesty is being polluted, is being polluted not only with these satellites that we can see, but that there are plans for tens of thousands of them to go up and to be out there just a little bit fainter and a little bit dimmer and a little bit farther away that the human unaided eye can't quite see them. And knowing that what I'm seeing are just the latest bunch of satellites to go up and join these mega constellations, um, it doesn't give me that same feeling of peace any longer.
flying around the houses at night flying alone a teenage space shell this show Low Orbit was born from an idea I had in the early 2000s, which was simply that I knew talented people and I wanted to provide a showcase for the stuff they made and maybe make some stuff of my own. And I would present all of that stuff, well, in a really neat way. That idea never happened then, obviously. There was no feasible way to make something like that and release it out in the world. Podcasts were still a few years off. But I did come up with a name, Low Earth Orbit. And when I came back around to the idea, the name stuck in my head. I started as Denver Orbit as I was featuring mostly Denver people and stories, but eventually I realized people outside of the city were probably not going to listen. So a little adjustment and here we are, low orbit. I took the word Earth out as it sounds too sciencey, like it's some kind of science show. So here's the thing, Google doesn't care. If you search for low orbit, or if you set up a Google alert for low orbit, you get low Earth orbit results, which is mostly news stories about satellites, rockets, Elon Musk, China, and general space stuff. So far, I've only received one Google alert that's actually about the show. Thanks, Denver Post. But here's the thing. Those things that happen in the orbit of this planet, the rockets, the satellites, the unknown objects, they're actually kind of interesting. So I decided to make an episode about them. We've got a couple of things to explore here, but before we leave Mr. Elon Musk's little project behind completely, I wanted to mention one last thing. While I was watching these lights appear in the night sky and move in a kind of unexpected way, there was a second, just a quick second there that I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool if this were aliens? Now, I didn't really think that I was seeing a bunch of flying saucers. It's not something I really believe in, but I kind of want to. And I was a huge fan of the X-Files back in the 90s, and I spent a good amount of my childhood poring over Time Life's Mysteries of the Unknown books. As that famous poster on Mulder's wall says, I want to believe. I don't know. Kind of. Anyway, there are a lot of people who want to believe in UFOs and aliens and all that, and there are a lot of people who already do. It's what our next story is about the people who believe in these unidentified objects in low orbit. Weirdly, this idea has kind of come out of the shadows a bit in the last few years. There's been a spate of new attention paid to it, mostly because of this. This was a news story that came out kind of simultaneously in the New York Times and in Politico back in December 2017, and it said there was this Pentagon research program called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, um, or ATIP, because everybody needs an acronym. And uh, it was a $22 million program that ran from about 2007 to about 2012. And uh, the, the people who had worked on it said they had investigated sightings of strange sky vehicles uh, from people in the military. And then, yeah, there were a few videos that came out with it that showed kind of blurry objects move, moving in weird ways. And this is... My name is Sarah Scholes, and I am a science journalist. I write about space things and physics things mostly um, for a popular audience. And I wrote a book about why, why we like UFOs so much called They Are Already Here. 
a lot has happened this year, so you'd be forgiven if you don't remember the video Sarah is referring to. These are videos that were released by the government this year, but had been previously leaked a few years ago. Essentially, they look something like this. You're looking at a grainy black and white video shot from a fighter plane, kind of like the Air Force equivalent of a dash cam. There's important looking numbers and lines around, and in the middle of this frame, you see a blob. It moves around a little bit. There's some chatter from the pilot about it. And uh, that's kind of it. Honestly, it's a little underwhelming. At first, it's like, wow, that's that's um, that's crazy that the that the government was running this thing and they're hinting that there might be aliens behind it. But then, yeah, when you start to dig into what the story actually says and the evidence they put forth, there's really not actually very much evidence that it that it was a UFO program at all that those videos show really strange things um, or that anybody high up um, in the Pentagon thinks that aliens might be visiting Earth. So it's it's a lot of um, sound and fury with not a whole lot of substance, I guess, in the end. Skull's interest in this new wave of UFOlogy was piqued by these videos and new accounts that were popping up especially considering they were popping up in stories written by institutions as august as the New York Times. That was what actually led me to be kind of investigating it because I was like, you know, all of there's all these weasel words in this story like um you know, the people people said xyz, people said that there were researchers who had been medically affected by UFOs and People said that they were modifying buildings in uh, Nevada to store strange debris from UFOs. And I'm like, I, I can say that also, and it doesn't make it true or real. Um, and so it was it was weird that it got all the way that it got all the way through that. But I I do think that when you're dealing with something so sensational as UFOs, people maybe put their evidence standards down a little lower than they do for other stuff. Sarah started looking around for where all of this new noise was coming from. And one of the first places she landed was Blink-182. That's right, the mall punk band. Turns out, Tom DeLong, their former lead singer, is really, really into UFOs. I could have started hearing about Tom DeLong's interest a little bit before the big articles came out. He had started this company that was kind of about UFO and paranormal stuff and getting information out there. And he was always in in different music publications because he's the he was the star of Blink-182 talking about how he's, he's going to have some really awesome stuff about aliens to tell us pretty soon. Um, and then never actually saying it. So I was kind of keeping an eye on it. I was very skeptical. I liked Blink-182, Blink especially when I was a teenager, but I was skeptical. But I was like, wouldn't it be really rad if it was Tom DeLonge who had all the aliens? secrets in the end. This is not a new interest for DeLong. He used to talk about UFOs a lot in interviews and that kind of thing. So with his public profile and his hyper focus, he's made a lot of inroads in the UFO community. 
I think, you know, he is a famous person. He is a public figure in in some way. And so in part because of that, he got access to important people. Like he, uh, he used to email with John Podesta's staff. He um, got to go to a meeting at Lockheed Skunk Works, their uh, experimental aerospace division. Um, and he at some point managed to kind of gather around him former intelligence officials, former military people, the alleged former director of this Defense Department UFO program, and formed this company that he said was going to do all this UFO research and bring the truth of the whole matter to the people. Um, Although what we've seen so far is bringing movies and books and t-shirts and now masks to the people, but um, still not a whole lot of um, concrete UFO proof that I've seen myself. My understanding of the goals of this company, which is called uh, To The Stars, um, is that he has within himself uh, the, the alien and UFO truths, but we, we the people, cannot handle that yet. Um, and so he has to put them out in bits and pieces in these forms of entertainment so that we can k- kind of get used to the idea that, that they're here on Earth. And um, then one day we'll get the, the nonfiction disclosure. Of course, our fascination with UFOs goes much farther back than the mid-90s. And one of the main issues surrounding the phenomenon is governmental disclosure. The less disclosure there is, or the more dishonest it is, the more speculation occurs. I think what history bears out is that either either the government kind of comes out and says, like, yeah, that's a UFO, like they did actually with with what happened in Roswell, the first thing they said was, yeah, that was a flying saucer, um, when in fact it was a top secret nuclear test detector. Because if you say it's a flying saucer, nobody's going to think top secret nuclear test detector. Um, they did this with the spy planes from the Cold War, um, like the the U-2, um, when people would see that. Um, a lot of people reported U-2s as UFOs, and they just kind of let that let that ride because if if you tell me you saw a UFO um, on average, probably I'm going to just dismiss you or be like that's that's mildly interesting um, and not go looking for um, a classified <laughs> aircraft. And if that's how things have gone down in the past, um, you know people in governments don't usually change that much, so probably there's some of that going on now also. The place that Sarah quickly just mentioned there. Roswell, New Mexico, is where, in the 1950s, a mysterious silver object fell from the sky and onto someone's ranch. The government initially said it was a crashed alien spacecraft, but then quickly took that back. And from that point on, we were off to the races. The UFO museum there in Roswell actually has a pretty good explanation of it. The documents and old photos and things that they have are legitimate and do kind of do a good job of chronicling the story as it unfolded, because it was a process from something crashing, the Army Air Force saying it was a flying saucer, then taking it back and saying, no, it wasn't. It was a weather balloon um, to the kind of modern incarnation where there's maybe alien bodies that we cart off to Area 51. Um, I think they do a good job of having all the stuff that that shows the evolution of that story and then also the uh the official government reports about what actually happened 
it was kind of these high altitude balloons that were meant to detect whether the, the Soviets were testing any nukes. But I do think, and it's it's hard to tell whether it is, you know, to keep up the mystique and keep that sweet tourist money coming or whether it is sincere, I, I would venture that most people associated with the museum don't think that the uh, official story is the true story. So there are mysterious things falling from the sky, the government slash military lying about what it is. I mean, you really couldn't ask for better conditions for people coming up with ideas. Let's say theories about everything that's happening. Theories that persist to this day. Sarah's book, They Are Already Here, explores these ideas and the people who believe them. She investigates Roswell, Area 51, MUFON, that's the Mutual UFO Network, the aforementioned Tom DeLonge Project, and one of my favorite places in her book, Colorado's own UFO Watchtower. So the UFO Watchtower is out in the San Luis Valley, kind of close to uh, Great Sand Dunes National Park. And so you're just in this very dry um, valley that has extremes of temperatures in the hot and cold directions. Um, and you're sandwiched in between uh, very big mountains on both sides. And you're driving along and then you just start seeing these signs advertising the UFO watchtower. And if you didn't know what that was, you would be very curious. And then eventually um, on the side of the highway, you would see kind of a little dome um, and then around it kind of a U-shaped platform. And the platform is the UFO watchtower and the dome is a museum of the sightings and things that have that have gone on in the valley. Um, and so, you know, people go camping there, they go up on the watchtower at night, they look for UFOs. You're about 15 feet closer to the UFOs, so I don't know how much better the viewing is, but the most interesting part of, of the watchtower to me is actually in front of it, which is a, uh, I think they call it an energy garden. Um, I've never really understood what an energy vortex is, but there's a couple of them there, they say. Um, and uh, guarded by two alien beings, and everyone who comes is supposed to leave a little memento and some of their energy near these vortices. So it's just this wild space full of all of the things people happen to have in their cars or brought on purpose um, spread around these um, these uh, kind of spiral shapes. So there's like toothbrushes. Uh, currently there's a lot of hand sanitizer bottles um, and uh, ballpoint pens, uh, old books, old CD cases, um, just pretty much anything you can think of left from people over years and years. And again, if you're detecting a little bit of incredulity here, you're not wrong. I asked Sarah if after all of this research and traveling and meeting and talking to true believers, if she had come to believe herself even a little bit. The answer was solidly no. But she wasn't discounting people's experiences either. You know, everyone I talked to who told me a story of a, a sighting or of why they were interested in this topic, I found to be really sincere. Um, and I don't disbelieve that they saw something and that they couldn't explain it. And I think that is also true of, like, you know, like the leaders at MUFON and things like that, that there's just a sincere belief and interest. And then as you kind of go down that rabbit hole, you meet other people who have similar experiences and similar thoughts, and you just kind of 
amp each other up about it sometimes. Um, I guess, I guess in modern parlance, we'd call it an echo chamber. Um, but I mean, there are grifters and there are hoaxers, um, but they're the, you know, they're the people charging other people $2,000 to go on a weekend retreat where they promise you'll see UFOs. But aside from, aside from that, I think everybody's pretty sincere. The thing is, although the UFO movement has science-ish instruments, military-style acronyms, and all the trappings of a serious discipline, it's, it's not really based on science at all, because there's simply no credible evidence that aliens have visited the planet. And in fact, there's no real evidence that aliens exist at all. There's the possibility that they do somewhere. Carl Sagan talks about that, but that's not really the same thing. So, really, the UFO movement is, is kind of much more like faith. There's people to talk to about it, a community that exists around it, and a, a way to believe in something bigger, something that's deeper and more immense and important than, you know, this little life here on our little planet. I mean, what was interesting to me about the people who spend a lot of their time thinking about and researching UFOs is that what they really find appealing about it is it's a... It's a problem that they can try to solve and keep working on, and it is a, a mystery in the universe that is uh, accessible. Whether or not you have a PhD in, uh, you can't have a PhD in UFOs, but a PhD in in some kind of scientific research, like it's it's something that you can have access to, and I think that that is appealing to a lot of um, a lot of people who like hard problems. And I think it's also, you know, it's it's fun, it's a little inspiring. And um, the takeaway for me as a human being, I think, was I, I really came at it from the skeptic side of like, why would, why would anyone spend so much time on this probably fake thing? Um, and I gained an appreciation of the fact that it was like, okay, for, for people to be doing that, that was what they wanted to be doing. And we all have our things and they probably think that some of my interests and hobbies are, um, bad. My other takeaway was that it, like, I can't prove that alien spaceships aren't visiting Earth. And I think at the beginning I would have been like, I can, I'm a hundred percent certain that that is not happening. And at the end, you know, nothing convinced me that it was happening, but I had to admit that it was not possible for me to prove it wasn't just like it wasn't possible for them to prove to me that it was. And um, so that, I don't know what you call that, intellectual humility maybe, gained hopefully a little. Sarah's book is called They Are Already Here, UFO Culture and Why We See Saucers, and I highly recommend it. There's a lot of stuff in it that we only scratch the surface of here, including a trip to Area 51. You can buy it wherever you get books, but you should really shop locally. You can find more of Sarah Skull's work at sarahskulls.com. Finally today, whenever I have questions about space and all those things in it, I always turn to our favorite science communicator here at Low Orbit, Graham Lau. Graham Lau's been on the show a few times, talking about almost dying in a glacier collapse, beings on our planet that live in extreme environments, and the Big Bang. 
I asked Graham what the phrase low orbit meant to him, and he mentioned something called the overview effect, which is the shift in awareness that some astronauts have talked about when they view the Earth from space. Dr. Lau wrote an essay about that, and here it is. One of my favorite reads is the novel Starmaker by Olaf Stapleton. Published in 1937, it tells the story of a human consciousness traveling into space and experiencing the lives of worlds and stars and galaxies and exploring acts of creation and death and, and rebirth. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke once said this book was probably the most powerful work of imagination ever written. For an example of that, here's a passage from the moment that the narrator of the story first looks at the Earth from space. The sheer beauty of our planet surprised me. It was a huge pearl set in spangled ebony. It was nacreous. It was opal. No, it was far more lovely than any jewel. Its pattern coloring was more subtle, more ethereal. It displayed the delicacy and brilliance, the intricacy and harmony of a live thing. Strange that in my remoteness I seemed to feel, as never before, the vital presence of Earth as a creature alive, but tranced and obscurely yearning to wake. Now this is a view from a low orbit of our world from one person's imagination. And yet, in the years and decades since 1937, we've sent robots and people into space, and many have remarked similar sentiments to what Stapledon imagined. For instance, just the other day we, we launched more astronauts into space. They now join fewer than 600 other people who've traveled beyond the realm we know as Earth, passing what is known as the Kármán Line. Set at 100 kilometers or 62 miles above the Earth, this line marks the spherical region around our world and represents a border between our world and outer space beyond. When passing that border, we pass from aeronautics into astronautics, from flying in the skies to soaring in the heavens beyond. Of course, it's a very human thing to create some demarcation between what is not in space and what is. In reality, all of us and all of the organisms that we share our biosphere with and all that is the Earth, really, is also in space. Perhaps that lack of a simple partitioning is best observed by those who've traveled into space themselves, those who've had the chance to look back at the Earth from their low orbit and realize that our very human notion of demarcation, of boundaries and borders and lines on maps, that all disappears. In 1987, Frank White coined the term the overview effect in writing a book of the same name. Interviewing many astronauts on their experiences of seeing our world from so far above, he posited that the overview effect is a cognitive shift in the awareness a human being has of the Earth and life and their own place in the cosmos upon traveling into space. As White wrote, it refers to the experience of seeing firsthand the reality that the Earth is in space a tiny, fragile ball of life hanging in the void, shielded and nourished by a paper-thin atmosphere. 
Some common aspects of this experience is that the astronauts report having a feeling of awe for the planet, a profound understanding of the interconnection of all of Earth's life, and a renewed sense of needing to do something to take care of our environment here on Earth. Their reports remind me of some of the sensations one might have during meditation. Feeling a profound awe and wonder for the world and the cosmos around us, and a connection to everyone and everything, and perhaps more importantly, a deeper understanding of the importance to live and to act on a grander scale as to make our lives and our world better. The overview effect, as reported by astronauts, also reminds me of the last line from that passage from Star Maker. Strange that in my remoteness I seem to feel, as never before, the vital presence of Earth as a creature alive, but tranced and obscurely yearning to wake. And I'll remind again that Stapleton wrote Star Maker in 1937, long before anyone had traveled to space and truly realized the value that might be gained by seeing our world from orbit. Now, I know that there may be some listening who question the value of sending humans into space at all. Any of us who are involved in the realm of space exploration have heard time and time again the question, why do we waste money on space when we have so many problems here? And here again, I'll refer to Stapleton, but this time in his foreword to Star Maker. With great changes that were going on in the socio-political structure of Europe and the rest of the world around 1937, with many quite aware that a great war was potentially right around the corner, Stapleton remarked about the timing of his writing of a story set within the heavens. Perhaps the attempt to see our turbulent world against a background of stars may, after all, increase, not lessen, the significance of the present human crisis. It may also strengthen our charity toward one another. While I personally could mention the myriad technological benefits of sending humans into space, or the very fact that the actual reason we know so much about the precarious position of our world right now with regard to climate change and the environment is mainly because of our monitoring of our world and others from space. I think though for me, one of the key reasons to send humans into orbit of our world is to experience that world without borders, to realize there is no demarcation, no lines on maps, to bring back their stories of awe and wonder, to share the overview effect with the rest of us, to share with us that feeling that we are all in this thing together. Stapleton wrote of the present human crisis at their time. We have a, a present human crisis right now in the face of a pandemic, let alone all the things coming along with it in, in economic troubles, socio-political problems. But seeing our world from beyond and sending astronauts into space and, and sharing in this overview effect together, this realization that we are all on one little rock in space hanging in the void together, I think that might make us more charitous toward one another and might, might help us to realize that we're all in this thing together.
satellites gone up to the skies things like that drive me out of my mind I watched it for a little while I like to watch things on TV satellite of love Graham Lau is an astrobiologist and science communicator. He's also the director of communications and marketing and a research scientist at Blue Marble Space. You can find more of his work at cosmobiata.com. And Ethan Siegel from the beginning of the show is a theoretical astrophysicist and science writer who studies Big Bang Theory. He's also the author of the book Treknology, The Science of Star Trek, which I feel like I need to talk to him about at some point in the future. You can find more of Ethan's writing at Starts With a Bang at Forbes Magazine online. And that's it for this episode. And this will kind of be the last of the year, I'm afraid. I wanted to make a bunch more than 12 of these this year, but it's been a strange year and life sort of got in the way. But I actually have a whole bunch of things planned next year, including a mini-series about the end of the world. Really, it's more about why human beings love the apocalypse. So keep an eye out for that, along with some collaborative stuff that we have planned. It's going to be a good year. Low Orbit is going to keep going. But in the meantime, we are always looking for collaborators, conspirators, confederates, and others who may be interested in putting something out in the world. If this sounds like you... Let me know at denverorbit at gmail.com or, you know, all the other places you find people on the World Wide Web. Twitter, Facebook, we've even got an Instagram, which may be of interest to you if you like silly stuff. So, have a great holiday season. Well, as great as you can, given everything. And we will see you next year.